If you have the Word of God uh, with you, we're going to hop back into uh, John, and I'm really excited uh, to hear the message this morning, but I'll invite Renee up to uh, do the scripture reading. This is the Word of God, John 11, 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how, they loved, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Amen. Thank you, Renee. Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? You guys good? All right. I get it. It's cold. It's rainy. It's fall. Uh, if you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we like to take books of the Bible and kind of go line by line, verse by verse through them to see what God has for us. Uh, The scriptures make a claim about themselves that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful or or profitable for a variety of things, for teaching us, for correcting us, and for training us in righteousness. And um, as you could probably tell from this passage today, we've got this this kind of famous verse, the, the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept. And one of the reasons why we like to go through books of the Bible is that it forces us to confront things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise want to confront or talk about. And if I'm just being completely honest with you today, you know, it's fall, it's cold, it's rainy. I would rather not do a sermon on Jesus weeping and sorrow and death. I feel like I want to do something happy. I want to do something about like how the gospel is like a pumpkin spice latte and it makes you feel warm inside or something like that. But I trust that God has us in this passage of scripture for a particular reason on this particular date. Amen? That God is sovereign and in his providence, he has us looking at these verses together today. And so if you would join with me to pray as we jump in to this passage today, I'll invite you to pray with me, I'll invite you to pray for me, and I'll invite you to ask the Lord to meet with you in a unique and individual way today. That's my prayer, okay? So let's go before the Lord. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures that are given to us for our building up. God, for some of us, we need to be corrected. Would you correct us today? And would we receive that correction knowing that it comes from a heart of love for us? God, some of us need to be encouraged today. Some are here and they are in the throes of suffering. And I ask and I pray that Jesus, you would meet with them and you would meet with us in in a way that is as, as tender and as personal and as memorable as even the way that we see you meeting with, with Martha and with Mary in these words. God, for some of us today, we're, we're not particularly suffering, but Jesus, you call us 
to follow you. If we've been saved by you, then we're called to live our lives in a way that follows your example. And so would you help us to learn and to grow in our ability to minister comfort to others who are in a place of suffering? And in all of this, Jesus, would you help our focus and our attention be on you? It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Everyone said, amen. So I was listening to a podcast recently, and it's a documentary podcast about a cult group. Go with me on this. And uh, it was actually a real tragic story about this, this cult group back in the 90s. You guys remember the Heaven's Gate cult group? Uh, and it was the, at the time, I think it still is, the, the largest mass suicide in American history, a group of uh, religious devotees who ended up following someone who was in my opinion, mentally deranged, and they all ended up taking their lives. And that's not the interesting part. The interesting part that struck me was they were interviewing the elderly parents of one of the women who who took her life. And they were interviewing the mom in particular, and the mom was saying about how when she found out she was pregnant with this baby girl, her, her whole heart was just so full of joy and happiness because all of the cousins were all boys. I think it was like 22 boys, and this was the first baby girl, and they loved her, and they were so devoted to her. And then she grew up and joined this cult group and ended her life. And it became a media circus. If you guys were, you know, remember that back in the late 90s, it was, you know, 24-hour cable news was well-established at this point. They had people from uh, magazines and newspapers and cable news going through their house all day, every day. And, and the, the person who was doing this podcast interviewed them and said, you know, why were you so generous with your time in the middle of your grief? Why did you have so many people coming through your house in and out bothering you while you're in the midst of grief and sorrow over losing? your daughter and the dad who didn't say very much he spoke up and he said and I quote it actually helped us get through it we were so busy with this stuff that we couldn't feel sorry for ourselves different people respond to grief and suffering in different ways different people respond I I see this even in my own children when my, I have four daughters, ages five through 13, when, when one of my daughters gets hurt or has something that upsets her, she comes running and just wants to be hugged and loved and consoled and wants to just sit and weep and cry. I have one daughter who, I'm fine, pushes you away a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm fine, it's, it's, it's okay, just kind of move on. Don't make a big deal, don't fuss. I have another daughter who actually legitimately gets angry if you try to comfort her. Any adults in the room still do that a little bit, right? <laughs> Sometimes we don't really grow out of those different ways of manifesting our sorrow and our grief. The point being, each of us experiences sorrow and grief in different ways. And each of us receives comfort and love and encouragement in that place of grief in different ways. And, and this passage here in John chapter 11 is rather remarkable because we get to see how Jesus meets with two sisters who are very different from each other. And he meets with them in very different ways. And so, so here's the big idea of where we're headed today. When you suffer... Jesus is there for you, and I would say in a very unique and personal and individual way, with comfort, but also with challenge. Okay? That's where we're headed. Jesus is there with comfort and with challenge. Now, 
we're in John chapter 11, but I want to take a brief detour and I want to go to Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible, you can, you know, keep a finger here in John 11, flip back over to Luke chapter 10. If you don't, you can just follow along on the screen. I want to, I want to read to you the story of where we first meet these two sisters, Mary and Martha. So this is, this is, uh, earlier in Jesus' ministry than the story we're looking at today. The story we're looking at today is, is late in Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's, it's around a week or so before he is going to be crucified. But Luke 10, this is way earlier on. So while they were traveling, that's Jesus and his disciples, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Okay, confession time. How many Marthas do we have in the room? Men, that includes you too. Okay. Now, I like that it says it was also, Mary was also sitting at the Lord's feet, because that means that there was a time when Martha was also sitting at the Lord's feet. Both sisters were sitting with the Lord in the posture of a student, Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the teacher. But Martha, who is uh, very likely the older sister, she bears the burden of responsibility in a hospitality-based culture. She has to make sure that the things get done, the food has to be prepped, the cleaning. And so she comes to Jesus with this complaint. Dude, paraphrasing, it's in the Greek, you have to look. But like, what's up with my sister? Could you please reprimand her a little bit, tell her to get on the ball and help me out here. I'm doing all the work and she's just sitting there. What does Jesus say? The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. It's kind of like Marsha, Marsha from the Brady Bunch, but it's different. So (laughs) I'll, sorry, I'll fix that for the next service. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus is is not saying that those tasks and things are unimportant, but what he says is there's a hierarchy of importance. It's not unimportant to need to clean and cook and get things ready and get things prepared, but there is something that's more important, which is to sit at the feet of Jesus in the opportunity that you have to sit with him, to learn from him and to listen to him. So if, if at the risk of, of oversimplifying, Martha is someone who tends towards being action oriented, right? And even justice-minded. You know what I mean by justice-minded? This is right. This is wrong. She ought, that word ought or should be helping. Okay? Mary appears to be more opportunity-oriented. Hey, we don't have this, this amazing teacher, this one who's going around preaching the kingdom of God, claiming to be the Messiah. We don't have this opportunity every day. I better take full advantage of it by sitting at his feet. She's more relationally oriented. Okay, so this is at the, at, the, at the risk of broad brushing. Again, okay, I made the Marthas raise their hand a moment ago. How many Marys might we have in the room? Just, okay, good. Okay, more relational. And, and there's, there's something about, I'll just say this. There's something in our culture, American culture, we're a, you know, uh, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, work hard, accomplish things, kind of a culture in general. And there can tend to be a bit of a looking down on those who are more relationally oriented. I would just say as long as your relationally oriented heart 
isn't an excuse for being lazy. Jesus already says that Mary has chosen what is better. So that's the sisters, okay? That's the sisters. Now, going back to the verses we looked at last week, just briefly, because I want to see, I want you to remind, remember, this, this Mary and Martha, they had a brother named Lazarus, and he had died. And they sent for Jesus. He delayed for a few days. Well, he was ill. They sent for Jesus. He delayed for a few days. By the time Jesus got there, Lazarus was already dead. This is what we read last week when, when Martha came, came running out to Jesus. So I'll pick up in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Remember that? Isn't that great? I mean, amazing faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Again, Martha's got good theology. She cooks, she cleans, she studies the Torah. She's, she's a capable woman. Jesus said to her, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Jesus engages in a theological discussion with Martha and in so doing, he does what he always does. And he says, the point of all of the theology you've ever learned and all the theology you've ever been taught is me. Now, if you and I are to do that, that's self-aggrandizing. That's prideful. But for Jesus to do it, it's completely appropriate because he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus can say, yeah, all that theology you've studied, it's all about me. And then he says, anyone who lives Uh, So whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then what does Jesus do? He calls her to action. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Like she gets it. She gets it. She absolutely gets it. Now, Keep that conversation in your mind as we go into these next verses and we look at Jesus' interaction with Martha's sister, Mary. Verse 28. Now when she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Um, the idea about it being in private. So in, in particularly in Jewish culture, the ancient Near East, actually even in, in many parts of the world, the Near East culture, uh, mourning and grieving is not some solitary private thing. It's a very public, uh, demonstrable sort of a thing. There's, the, there's a... Um, there's a verse in one of the Jewish Mishnahs where this rabbi guy, Rabbi Yehuda, he says that even the poorest man in Israel should have not fewer than two flute players and one lamenting woman at the funeral of his wife. So if a man's wife dies, you have a, a woman who comes and they just cry. And their job is to get other people crying because crying is kind of like yawning or for some people vomiting. It's like, it's contagious, right? So you have someone who comes and they're like, they're just really good at crying. Okay. Anybody know somebody who's like really good at crying? I've known a few people. Yeah. Are you? You're good at crying. Okay. So 
when we start our funeral ministry, okay, we sign you up. If you're good at crying, right? Anybody here play the flute? Because you're supposed to have at least two flute players, right? The idea though is, is you don't just retreat into your bedroom. You don't just go to your house by yourself. The idea is there's a lot of people there. And Mary is surrounded by a lot of people. What did we already learn about Mary when we looked at the passage in Luke 10? She probably is not all that wild about the lot of people. She probably is more of an individual, relationally minded person. So when Mary heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, this is so, I mean, there's so many things that like, we don't really get answers, but it's so fascinating. Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Now, Jesus meets outside of the village with Martha because Martha is action-oriented. Oh, Jesus is coming? I'm going to go find him. Jesus meets with Mary outside of the village because he knows that she would probably like a little bit of retreat, some space. And that loving. Now, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, again, group, A lot of people, a lot of flutes. They saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So much for privacy, right? Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. There's no mention of that with Martha. It's a different posture. She fell at his feet, saying to him, and then... The exact same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same words, different approach, right? Same idea, same sentiment. Why didn't you do something? Where were you? We needed you, Jesus. I don't like this situation. I don't like that we are where we are, but there's a very different posture and a very different emotional approach. When Jesus saw her weeping, okay, this is, this is going to take some unpacking. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the, the Jews, just this group of people from the village in the area, who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, If you're a note taker, underliner, those would be some good phrases to underline right there. And he said, this is what he said. Hey, where have you laid him? Where have you placed his body to rest? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. All right, there's a lot happening here in these words. And I want to take a moment on these verses and and just point out a few things. Number one, there's something beautiful happening in these verses where we see that Jesus relates to us individually. Is it comforting for you to know that the Savior does not have one standard boilerplate set of responses to deal with even two sisters who are processing grief in very different ways, right? With, with Martha, it's, it's more public, it's, or at least it's open to public view. He's more direct. He engages with her questions. It's more theological. They get into death and resurrection and the end of the age. He calls her to action. Now, Jesus is still compassionate with Martha, right? 
It's not like he's like, hey, buck up and just, you know, stiff upper lip and all that. He's still compassionate, but he's engaging with her because she's an action-oriented, action-minded type of woman. And so he engages with her in that way. But contrast that with Mary. He sent a, a private message. He's trying to engage with her privately. I mean, it didn't work out, but that's what his, his intent was toward her. He was gentle. There, there's no dialogue. Did you notice that? There's not a dialogue. She falls at his feet, weeping, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what does he say? Hey, show me the place. Where, where is he? And he weeps and he's greatly troubled and he's, he's moved and distressed in his spirit. So, so he's more emotional. If Mary is more emotional, Jesus is more emotional in that moment. He meets her where she's at. And the, the, the action is, is much simpler. He doesn't call her to this direct action. He says, hey, would you show me? Would you invite me in? to the place where his body is laid. Jesus relates to us individually. One of the things that can be hard about um, being a good friend is knowing how to relate to different people in different ways. Uh, any of you parents with your children, you have different, very different types of children. You find, like, man, this can be hard sometimes to know how to relate to this one or relate to that one. And, and, and we have this mentality, well, everything needs to be fair and everything needs to be equal, but fairness and, and equality doesn't always mean just a one-size-fits-all. Actually, I listened to a podcast. I'm sorry, I, I did. I listened to a podcast once where they, they talked about this myth of one size fits all and how what they do is like, let's say like a car with, with a seat and they'll measure like the average height of all of the people in the, you know, whatever, the United States of America and they'll make this seat that would be perfect for the average human being in America. And then you know what the problem is? Not one single person fits that chair. It's just equally uncomfortable for everybody. Jesus is not like that with us. It's not a boilerplate answer, a one-size-fits-all. He says, hey, let me, let me meet you where you are. Did you know that your individuality is a beautiful expression of a, of a part of the image of God? Every human being, man and woman, young and old, every skin color, every nationality, every, every uh, socioeconomic status, every single one of us bear the image of God. Now, not one of us bears the complete and totality of the image of God, and that's why we're called a, a body with many parts. So I would just encourage you, don't denigrate yourself. It's far too easy for you to look at someone else and say, boy, I wish I was the part of the body that they were. I wish I could relate to Jesus the way they do. That you relate to Jesus how you relate to Jesus. And yes, while you're being shaped and, and changed and grown, I think it's greatly comforting to know that Jesus knows you individually and he cares about you individually. The second thing I want to point out from this passage here is that Jesus' emotions are a great comfort to us. Does, does, does okay, Sometimes you see like artwork and painting of Jesus. A lot of artwork and the paintings of Jesus came about in the period of, you know, the Renaissance, late Middle Ages, um, and then even into the Enlightenment. And one of the common things about much of the artwork of Jesus is that he's so stoic. He's so stoic. Uh, Anybody ever seen, like, there, what's the one called? I think it's Jesus of Nazareth, the, the film that they made about the life of Jesus. I think it's back in, like, the set, late 70s, early 80s. Anybody ever seen that one, right? I remember watching that in my youth, in my childhood, and, like, Jesus is so, yeah. So, uh, like, he, like he, man, he took way too much Xanax or something. Like, he's just numbed out and just so zen. And, 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 
And I would, I would argue that it's just not a fully biblical portrait of Jesus. I recommend it, actually. Last week I mentioned to you, um, there's, this, there's a, a full-length movie of the Gospel of John, actually of all four of the Gospels, from this organization called the Lumo Project. We've got it linked to it up on the, on the sermon series page. Highly encourage you to watch it. But one of the things about it, it's word for word through the Gospel of John, and there's like acting happening kind of underneath it. And I'll tell you what, there's a few parts where like I got uncomfortable because the actor who's portraying Jesus, like there's some high emotion and some weed. I'm like, ooh, that's, that's kind of pushing it for me. I'm used, to, I'm used to just stoic Jesus. I'm used to, you know, man, just he's calm, he's zen, he's always in control. Jesus wept. Jesus was deeply moved. Jesus was greatly troubled. And I'm going to explain those in just more detail in a moment. But is it comforting for you to know that the God of the universe does not sit back in cold-hearted isolation, but is actually moved in his spirit over our troubles and hardships and suffering? Does that encourage you? Yes, God never changes. Yes, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, the Lord is not led by his emotions in the way that sometimes we can be sinfully where we allow our emotions to fool us or to deceive us. But it is not biblical to picture God as always stoic. That's not the God of the Bible because when you look at Jesus, you see the exact representation of the nature of God. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. You want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. So Jesus wept. So Jesus was emotional. Some of you have been fed a lie that to express emotion is somehow sub-Christian or maybe even just like sub-respectable, responsible adult. And it's not. It's not. The third thing, though, from these verses, this is going to take a a moment to unpack, is this. Jesus' emotions are also a challenge to us. So there's two phrases that are used here about Jesus' emotion. The first one, it says he was deeply moved. The Greek word underneath that is embrimaomai. And the root of that, I, I studied it out, It has to do with, you guys are going to like this. It has to do with the way that a horse's nostrils flare when it's angry. Hmm. So so deeply moved, like a horse snorting. Right? Think about that. And it says greatly troubled. That word is tarazzo. And it actually, it's translated disturbed or terrified or agitated. I looked, there was probably eight different commentaries that I just looked through this week about this verse. And almost every single one said something to the effect of the translators of the English Bible are often a little bit scared to tell you what this verse is really saying because it might disturb you a little bit. Rodney Whitaker, one Bible scholar, says the the better way to translate this verse would be Jesus became angry in spirit and very agitated. Angry in spirit, not just deeply moved. Actually, if you have your Bible, you can see wherever that phrase is, deeply, deeply moved. There's probably a little number right next to it. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, some, mine, mine here says, or indignant. Jesus was indignant 
were upset and agitated. And he's weeping, but he's upset. So the question is, why? Why is Jesus mad? The fact is that, the, that John is trying to tell us something about Jesus. Why? The question is why? A couple of different possibilities. One possibility is that he's looking at this crowd of people, particularly Mary and Martha, who have already sat at his feet and he's taught them, and they're weeping and they're grieving like people who have no hope. Friends, do you know that in Christ we always have hope? We grieve, we weep, we lament, but we always do so as people who have hope because we know that Christ is risen and death is defeated and, and there's always hope in his name. Amen? So it could be that Jesus is frustrated with their lack of faith. I've told you I'm the resurrection and the life. I've told you that I have the power over death. I'm not convinced by that because it doesn't seem that there's really anything contextually, any clues in the text that would lead us Oftentimes the Bible authors will tell us Jesus was upset at their lack of faith. They usually tell us that. The second possibility, and the one that I think is way more likely, is he is really upset over death and suffering itself. The fact that Jesus is the one who spoke the world into existence and there was harmony and there was peace and there was life and there was goodness and there was shalom. And due to human sin and human rebellion, this, this beautiful world that God intended to be a home for his image bearers has been ravaged by sin and suffering. And here's this group of people, Mary and Martha in particular, who he loves and they're crushed and they're weeping. And Jesus is just not okay with the fact that sin and suffering and death and destruction are having that kind of effect on his good creation. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that way? I, ha I, live, um, I live kind of near the, the Meadowdale area. And if you've been paying attention to the news this week, there have been like two shootings right in my, like, my very nice, beautiful, quiet suburban neighborhood. You drive through, it's like, oh, this would be a lovely area to live. Two shootings and like a hit and run thing. Like it's been chaos in my neighborhood for this last week. And I found in my own heart, I'll just confess this to you, I was mad at those people. How dare they disturb my sense of peace and safety and tranquility in my suburban fortress that I've built up. How dare those people go and act like thugs and hooligans. And my heart was not disturbed by whatever is going on in the lives of those teenagers or young people because something has gone terribly wrong in their home, in their hearts, in their minds to lead them to make these foolish choices and that ought to piss me off. That people who are loved by God don't know his love, don't know his comfort, don't know his grace and instead I'm mad for my own sense of safety, security, comfort, peace, tranquility. Jesus, the fact that he has emotions is a challenge to us because it reprioritizes the things that we should think, should feel, should emote over. The gospel, Jesus didn't show up to just make everybody happy. Now, ultimately, we're going to get there. 
But Jesus says there's a right way and a wrong way to make everybody happy. I think it was, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you know, if, if I wanted, I don't need to go to God to make me happy. I could just have a bottle of port. That's what he said. That would make me happy. He goes, I go to, I go to God to be transformed in his image, into his likeness. I'm paraphrasing very broadly, but the, the bottle of port part, that was, I remember that. I always knew that a bottle of port would make me happy. You know, we go to God because he has the power of eternal life. So when you come to God, he's not just going to try to make you happy. If you're suffering, if you're in sorrow, if you're in distress, God has happiness for you. He has joy for you. But what he ultimately wants to do is he wants to challenge you so that you start to see things the way that he sees things, so that you start to understand his perspective on life. There's, a, there's a, a, an author of a book I read earlier this year. His name is William Willimon, and he says this, the gospel is not simply about meeting people's needs. The gospel is a critique of our needs, an attempt to give us needs worth having. The Bible has little interest in many of the desires that consume present-day North Americans. Therefore, Christian care will be about more than meeting people's needs. Christians are the sort of people who have had their needs rearranged in the light of Christ. Is that good? Is that challenging? Oh, you guys know, <laughs> I, had a, I had like an ultimate first world problems moment earlier this week, and it was Pete. It was here. He called me out on it. We were going to my office and I, like, I need to show him something. I was going to pull up my computer and I'm very blessed. I got a stand-up desk. It was given to me when we first planted Sound City Bible Church and it raises and lowers. It's like the, it's like the best desk. I'm very happy about it. It's a huge gift. And I was like, oh, Pete, come in my office and look at something. And then it was like, but it was low. And I was like, here, I'm going to put it up on my screen. And so I start pushing the button. It just starts going really slow. And I kind of went, oh, the stand-up desk raises so slowly. And, and Pete just like, fell over laughing. He was like, wow, like talk about first world problems. I mean, yes, you are right. Now that's a silly example, but can I just be honest with you? I think there are many things on any given week that you and I stress out about, freak out about, expend emotional energy about that really don't ultimately matter in the scheme of the kingdom of God. We can convince ourselves that our problems are much bigger than they are. All right, verse 36. We're gonna, we're gonna end this story like, you guys know that Lazarus is going to get raised from the dead, right? Okay? Next week. Okay? <laughs> stay, stay sad and angry for today. So, Jesus had this great display of emotion. Greatly troubled, agitated in spirit, all that. And then he wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Okay, so two groups of people. We had the two sisters. We've seen those contrasted. Now we're seeing two groups of people contrasted. Um, I'm going to be gracious, okay? Uh, I, I, one group of people is, again, relationally oriented. Wow, Jesus really loved this family. Jesus really loved Lazarus, really loved Mary and Martha. Wow. And another group of people is like, yeah, but, but he's got power. He could, he could have done something. Why didn't he? They're maybe more action-oriented, Right? This might be kind of Mary and Martha kind of blown up large into the crowd. Now, if I was going to be more negative, I could say, well, one group is very sentimental. Oh, isn't it nice that he loved him? The other group is utilitarian. He should have done something. Here's, here's the thing. Both groups of people are about to have their entire universe rearranged 
in just a matter of minutes. They both had expectations of Jesus, like I was talking about last week, that did not measure up to what Jesus had planned for them. R.C. Sproul, recently passed away Bible teacher and, and, and scholar, he said, it was good that those who asked this question trusted Jesus to heal. Like, that's a good thing. Hey, Jesus could have healed him, but they needed to know the full extent of his power. So we'll leave that there till we get into next week. But here's what I, here's here's what this question jogged in my mind. They're, They're questioning Jesus and they're asking this question. Hey, he healed the blind. Why couldn't he have? Helped Lazarus. He healed others. Why couldn't, why couldn't he have made Lazarus well? And the moment that I read that this week, I thought of another verse in Matthew 27 where Jesus is hanging on the cross and the people walk by and said, he saved others. Why couldn't he save himself? This question about the full extent of Jesus' power leads us right to the cross. Leads us right to the cross. So we keep coming back to the cross. We keep coming back to the, to the crucifixion and, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus because that's where everything else starts to make sense. Even in John's gospel, it talks about after Jesus was risen, after he was glorified, things started to come into alignment. They started to get it. Jesus could have done X, Y, and Z. Why didn't he? But there is Jesus hanging on the cross. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the one whom God would send this way. He said, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. Do you guys know that instinct, that, that, that desire within you when you see suffering and you see pain? Our, our, our desire is to hide our face and to look the other way. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't value him. Ah, he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah. Here he is dying on a cross. But in so doing, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Our thinking is, He should have done this. Wow, why couldn't he do that? And yet all the while, God is telling us that in that moment of suffering on the cross, Jesus is taking the griefs of the entire world upon himself. He's taking our sorrows. He's taking our pains. Jesus has done something about our sorrows. It just doesn't look like what sometimes we expect. And for the relationally oriented, Jesus is there experiencing the suffering that we do so that we know he can relate to us. And for the action oriented, for the more Marthas among us, Jesus is literally taking the sin and the suffering of the world upon himself into his body so that one day we can have the promise of resurrection and new life. Does that encourage anybody here? See, the cross starts to realign our our thinking and our perspective on all of these things. St. Augustine, the the early church father, he says this, the one sick, it's Lazarus, the other sad, all of them were beloved, but he who loved them was both the savior of the sick, nay, more, the raiser of the dead and the comforter of the sad. 
Jesus meets each of us where we are in our suffering. If you're a more of a Mary type of person, Jesus meets with you and says, would you, would you take me to the place? Would you take me, show me where his body's laid? Would you invite me in to that deepest place of hurt and suffering? If you're a more of a Mary type, or a Martha type, I should say, Jesus says, I'm doing something about this. I'm going to take the suffering of the world upon myself. I'm going to defeat death by death, and I'm going to come out on the other side and rise again. And all who believe in me and trust in me, you too will rise again. Be patient. So how do we live this out? I'll give you two thoughts in closing here. Number one, you got to take your suffering to Jesus. In 1 Peter, it tells us, he invites us to cast all our cares on Jesus because he cares for us. Okay, I will just admit to you, and I know I'm not alone in this, when I go through hardships and I go through suffering, one of my first instincts in my own prideful, sinful heart is, well, I got to figure out how to fix this. I lean more towards the Martha side of things. But even for those of you who might lean more towards the Mary side of things, would you agree that there's times where you're going through hardship and you're going through suffering and just say, I'm just going to sit here and, and cry and try to make myself feel better? Does anybody relate to what I'm talking about? We, we don't avail ourselves of Jesus as much as we ought to. We ought to cast our cares on him continually, daily, moment by moment. The big things, and yes, even the silly little things, because in those moments, we have an opportunity for Jesus to redirect and sort out our priorities. Cast your cares on him. In our neck of the woods, here in the North Seattle suburbs, everyone, it's, it's I hate to sound kind of cliche, but it's, it's kind of the, you know, keeping up with the Joneses sort of a thing. You want it to look like your house is taken care of, your car is taken care of, your schedule is taken care of, your finances are taken care of, your kids are, you're here, they're dressed, they're fed, their hair's been brushed, you got them checked into kids ministry two minutes early so you can get your seat. Like, God bless you for all, all of that. But listen, if that type of effort and work and energy leads you to be a place of self-sufficiency in your hardships and suffering, then you are missing out on what Jesus has for you. He died, he rose again. He says, Bring it all to me. Bring it all to me. Bring it all to me. The big things, the medium things, and yes, even the trivial things, bring it all to me. Let me walk with you. Let me love you. Let me meet you individually where you are. And let me help you sort some things out. If there's things that you need to think differently about, he'll help you with that. If there's some things you just need to have like a good, ugly cry about, he'll help you with that. But take advantage of his offer. And actually, I'll even say it stronger. Take advantage of his command. Number two, <clears throat> we got to really learn how to enter into other people's suffering. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes 7 that says, the heart of the wise can be found in the house of mourning, but the heart of a fool is in the house of pleasure. Our entire culture is really like built around, oriented around uh, just a house of pleasure. I recently uh, watched the movie, uh, the old Pinocchio cartoon movie with my kids. You guys remember that? And uh, <clears throat> they were like, 
Remember the part when they went to Treasure, or, yeah, Pleasure Island. It's called Pleasure Island. Very subtle. Uh, and on Pleasure Island, it was, it was mostly all like adolescent boys, and they were <laughs> smoking cigars, fighting, and like playing pool. And my sweet daughter's like, why would anyone want to go to that place? I'm like, that sounds awesome, honestly. Like, <laughs> sounds like a great weekend. Guys weekend away, we're going to brawl a little bit when we're done. We're going to have some cigars and play pool. <laughs> it actually sounds like the stupid Tough mutter thing that we did yesterday. <laughs> Where was I going with that? Oh, I remember, okay. Our whole culture is built around this idea of pleasure and enjoyment and, and just don't, don't suffer. And if you do, kind of hide, hide or cover it up. And even like we saw in that Isaiah 53 verse, there's this tendency for us to turn our faces away. To hide our faces. We had a, a prayer night on Friday night. Pastor Kyle shared something about how one of the times that he got, got really broke his heart uh, for, for, for ministering to people who are homeless was he, he'd never given money. He didn't have some grand plan. He just sat and talked with them for a while, found out their story, found out their names. Because many of the people who are homeless, it's, it's like they're just not even there. I saw, it, I saw it with my own eyes just last night. Panhandling, sitting out there, trying to talk to people and just, Somebody in your community group is going through a rough time. Like, oh, mm, ooh, ah, sorry, uh, I'll pray for you. We've got to learn how to enter into other people's suffering better. If, if we're saved by Jesus, we're called by Jesus to, to follow in his footsteps, we've got, we got to learn how to enter into dis, discomfort. We have to learn how to enter into those awkward, uncomfortable situations. Friends, that's, that's profoundly countercultural in our area. Would you agree? It's profoundly countercultural. I actually even just saw it. Something as simple as like a, a mom who had a kid who was acting out and struggling and having a little bit of a fit. And I just watched it where it was like the mom's struggling and, and the, the people around kind of in the park area were just like, mm, 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 mm. not one person walked over and goes, hey, can I help you with anything? It's not weird. It shouldn't be weird. It's weird here. It shouldn't be weird. You don't have to necessarily do anything. Oftentimes, the best thing to do is just show up and be there. Like Jesus. Just, like, you can try to say some things. Just don't say anything particularly stupid. I mean that, like, you can do damage. But just, how about you start with that? I love you. I'm here for you. I'm so sorry you're going through this. I know that God loves you. Those are safe. You can say those things. Those are always true. And if that's all you got, praise God. For some of you, this has a missional component too because in our area, a lot of non-Christians, they don't feel like they really have needs. Things are comfortable, things are convenient, things are prosperous, and economic prosperity is through the roof. And so, dear Christians, let me, let me say this to you. This is going to sound kind of maybe a little, a little utilitarian or, or even crass, but you're playing the long game. At some point, that non-Christian coworker, family member, neighbor, is going to go through suffering. And you want to be the person whose phone they call and say, hey, could you, could you help me? You want to be the one that shows up with the first casserole, the first hug, the first, hey, I don't, I don't know what you believe, but could I just pray for you? In a moment, I'm going to invite Pastor Kyle to, to come up and, and lead us in communion in a time of response, but before we do that, I just want to pray right now and invite Jesus into this space. 
however he's calling you to respond, whether it's to bring your suffering to him, whether it's to enter into someone else's suffering. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we, we thank you that you are the kind of God who does not shy away from our suffering or our hardships, that you're the kind of God who loves us and entered in to our hardships and to our suffering, and that you love us in individual and unique ways. God, I pray for, for those who are currently going through a time of, of pain and suffering right now. I pray that you would help us to bring our cares to you. And thank you, Jesus, that you meet with us in just the exact way that we need. God, for some of us, maybe we need to have our sufferings rearranged. We, we, have, we have made things into much bigger deals than they actually are. We need to have our priorities realigned. God, for others, there's somebody in our life who is suffering and you want us to be your body, your hands, your feet, your heart toward them. Would you help us to obey you in that? Now we give this time of response to you and pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Aaron. It was a good word this morning. Amen. I was reflecting back on when I was saved, when Jesus met me where I was at, and I was in a pretty, pretty dark place, pretty um, a difficult time, and my wife and I, and I remember just being so shocked at the fact that Jesus met me where I was at, and the fact that he, in the mess, in the messiness of where I was at, he met me. And what a great reminder this morning that Jesus meets with us in our suffering, in our brokenness. He meets with us. He's not, he doesn't shy away from it. And, and I, love, um, I love that thought of just meeting with people where they're at. And so let's respond to that. Let's respond to Jesus, how he meets with us. And let's also go out and live, uh, as Pastor Aaron was saying, in the world and respond to other people's hurts and their brokenness and their suffering. This morning as we take, as we respond, we're going to take communion together. Uh, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat, the spread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Hopefully you got, your, got the elements on your way in this morning. Um, if not, they're out by the doors there. Um, but we're going to take communion in a moment. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, I'll just take a, take a few minutes, pause and reflect on, on your salvation, on how Jesus has met you where you're at, and, and also how he's calling you. Maybe pray, you know, ask the Lord, who is God calling you to go meet with? And um, again, thank, thank you, Lord, for uh, God, we just come before you right now. We just thank you for the fact that you meet us in our brokenness. God, you meet us in our suffering, and Lord, you gave your life for us. Uh, you modeled for us what it looks like in your ministry, in your life, in your death, and in, your, in the power of your resurrection. And so now, God, as we uh, come before you, we have an opportunity to meet with you at the table, uh, to take the bread and take the cup and to do this in remembrance of you. We thank you, God. We worship you, Jesus. And we just thank you for uh, this opportunity this morning to meet with you. And thank you, Lord, for meeting with us right now in this moment. I pray for each of us, Lord, as we uh, take communion now and as we uh, just reflect on the ways in which you've loved us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take 
uh, communion when you're ready, reflect, pray, and then the band will pray quietly, and whenever, they, uh, whenever we're ready, go ahead and stand and, and begin singing with us.